The last episode of our first series brings many changes for What is Water. Ed Potter, who has full credit for the idea of the podcast in the first place, is leaving as full-time co-host. As a fellow water geek, we will miss you very much and thank you so much for your contribution. The podcast will continue to grow, however, with Series 2 partnering with Blue Tech Research, the brains and producers behind the Brave Blue World documentary. Expect episodes covering water in America, gender equality, human rights, technology and religion. For now, let's turn to the episode at hand, Water in Fashion. Are you ready to go between the seams? Let's find out. we wear define the way we communicate with the world. I am this type of person so I dress like this. Colours, styles and fabrics, even the people who say they're not into it and don't care. A shirt, it's just a shirt. That's still a choice and a way of dressing. I don't think there is any denying how interwoven the fashion, clothing and apparel industry is to our lives to the point where we are essentially the fashion industry itself. The global apparel market was estimated to be worth up to 3 trillion US dollars in 2020. Over the past 20 years, there has been a 400% increase in clothes buying and globally it is estimated that one in every 10 workers are part of the fashion supply chain whether it's the checkout person on the high street or the person producing leather in a factory in South Asia. But you just know there has to be something not entirely good happening in the background for these numbers to be true. And in a vague and ambiguous way, we already know that though, don't we? Fashion as it is now is the second most polluting industry in the world after oil production. And what sucks is that the effect on natural resources is often not measured because it's taken for granted that the resources will always be there and be in a good state for us to use. Fast fashion is just the tip of the iceberg. When you start breaking that down into individual components, the story becomes a lot more interesting. Water's use and abuse in this system needs to be highlighted. The highs and lows, the future we should strive for, and the realities that should be left behind, if they can be. Welcome everyone to the last episode of series one. We're focusing on water's use in fashion today. Really important topic and I think one that doesn't get highlighted very often. Ed, are you into fashion? No. (laughs) See, but even people that say that, I think, are into fashion. Uh, I suppose suppose I'm, like everyone, slightly conscious of of how I look. Um, That's a slight lie. But I wouldn't say I I follow trends and and, uh, I'm particularly um, materialistic about it. What was the last thing you bought? So it's ironic that we're recording this um, episode today because yesterday I actually went shopping for probably the first time in several months and... um, realized I didn't have a, a proper suit of my own 
Um, so bought a, a suit from Marks and Spencers. Very suave. I mean, a, st- a good suit, a good fitting suit is something that I think everyone should have in their wardrobes as far as I'm concerned. It will last you for years and years and years, right? Yeah, that's the idea. Let's let's hope I can keep the mould off the shoulders and, and whatnot. It's getting ridiculously hot here and I just don't have any anything light that you can just throw on. So I did buy a few a few bits. In general, I think I would say you and I actually don't buy stuff very often, do we? Yeah, I mean, I speak for myself, but what, we, what about you, Nancy? When was no, that the last time you had a big shopping spree? I had a shopping a shopping spree, yeah, where I bought three things, but that was like the first time I'd bought anything new for ages. My The favourite item in my wardrobe is actually this uh, denim dress that was old school Laura Ashley, and it was my nan's. I think she bought in like the 70s and it fits like a dream. And I love stuff like that. I'd rather raid my family's wardrobes or go to a secondhand sh- uh, shop and do that. What's your favourite item? My favourite item? Just I, I like my clothes for pra- practical reasons. So in you know, this time of year, it's quite hot and I've got a few uh, white T-shirts that keep me quite nice and cool. Um, so they would, would probably be top of my list since you're asking me in July. Your favourite item is a white t-shirt. I'm going with that. <laughs> so like dynamic and charismatic. I love it. Cotton t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you. Um, how would you describe your style then if if you wear six form jerseys and white t-shirts? Sustainable. I would describe my style as hippie chic with, yeah, agree with an that. element of I don't know how, how would you describe myself? I've been thinking about this all day. Because I also well, I, think- I also just don't give a fuck either. Like <laughs> I'll wear jeans for like a month and without washing them. Like I just don't really, don't really mind. Hippie chic. Hippie chic. So researching on this topic has been mega. Um, there's so many things to think about and water is as part of this story is obviously inevitably linked to other elements, but we can distill it by looking at water's use and fashion through three products, cotton, jeans, and leather, one of which you would definitely have in your wardrobe, Ed, even if you do just have a cotton white t-shirt and your six-form shirt, uh, if, in, if you're not even wearing them right now, and this counts for all of us. So for example, as we said in the beginning, water, um, the average water footprint of a cotton t-shirt and when we say water footprint that's like the water locked in to any one thing so the water footprint for a cotton shirt is 2700 liters of water that's the equivalent of about 900 days of drinking water for one person if you're drinking three liters a day um i mean that sounds big on paper doesn't it ed that's absolutely crazy you know when you can buy a t-shirt sometimes for you know three four pounds and you consider how much water is in it goes into making that you know that that's a that's a tremendous amount of value you know to to someone if they were in a drought or something like that so yeah something weird's going on with with that with that economy of of producing the t-shirt so this this might sound like a lot of water and it is but we also have to remember to break it down into the blue water green water gray water water system so blue water being river water or groundwater or from a lake green water being the rainwater that comes naturally and then grey water recycled water and then we need to break it down further into consumptive and non-consumptive consumptive being the water that the plant actually uses and the non-consumptive being 
what's evaporated or just lost naturally in the process that goes back into the water cycle. According to the waterfootprint.org network, the average cotton share is 54% green water, so rainwater, 33% blue water, so from the lakes and the rivers, and 13% recycled water, so grey water. But what struck me is that this, this varies wildly from location to location. And for example, in Uzbekistan, the blue water can be as high as 88%. Which is a hell of a lot, isn't it, Nancy? Especially when you think that they're competing with other uses for that water and that you know use to, to grow cotton, which is so water intensive. So this example, this thing that you're saying about we have to take into account, like, what is this doing and what are the consequences of that, called the Aral Sea, which borders Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. It was once the fourth largest lake in the world, but since the 60s, it's been disappearing to the point where it's essentially dead. It's just, it's just not really there. So the two rivers that were feeding it have been dammed and diverted and, and abstracted um, to with an inch of their lives for what kind of production? Awesome. Yes, exactly. Um, I recommend all the all the listeners to go to Google Earth Engine. It's a great resource. And um, they've time-lapsed satellite images all over the world for the last 30 or 40 years. Type in ROC and just watch it shrink slowly but surely over time. It's an amazing resource. And that's just scary, isn't it? Especially as we move into this era of climate change and, you know, kind of wetter summers, uh, sorry, wetter winters and drier summers, you know, we're thinking about the impact that's going to have on our freshwater bodies when they become under more stress during the summers. You know, I just hope that we, we don't see this sea decline even more during... Oh, during... dude, it's beyond that. It's so beyond that. It's, it's gone. It's out of there. So I'm, my question is, well, what's the next one going to be? Or, or what other um, detriment are we going to see that on, you know, on this scale and this starkly? Another layer here is the pesticides that are used to ensure that these large yields all over the world, namely China, Pakistan, India and USA, are the, the kind of big cotton producers. You know, you need to use pesticides in order to meet these large yields. And in a lot of cotton production, Roundup is used. Everyone, you know, that slug repellent or whatever. It used to be manufactured by Monsanto before they got bought out by Bayer. Bayer Monsanto, these are all just like names that kind of trigger people into <laughs> what you know, wanting to put their foot down. But um, Bayer and Monsanto, this is where it gets interesting because they also provide the seeds for the cotton, genetically modifi- modified super cotton seeds or whatever. And in some cases, Bayer is also the buyer of the cotton when it's harvested as well. So they're essentially setting the price for everything, controlling the system. And you've got, you know, water pesticides being used on such a scale and the, the water's being polluted and it runs into water courses. Just as a side note, one of the resources that I was looking at, there's been a lot of evidence of high farmer suicide numbers in India because people get themselves trapped in this cycle. But, you know, let's let's put aside the evils of capitalism for one second. Um, the question needs to be asked what impact this intense use of pesticides is having on water and soil, right? Because that's that's the non-consumptive water runoff that we're talking about. That goes. Yeah, into- I mean, I think when we're thinking about these big commercial companies, actually, they have a vested interest in knowing what their water resources is going to be 10 years down the line. And they can't knowingly drain a sea or drain an aquifer if that's going to destroy their business. I don't... 
I don't know. I think it's get rich while you can. I think it's get rich quick, F everyone else, really. I'm not sure. That That's just me being really pessimistic as always. But most of the time, the non-consumptive water runoff from these massive fields with the pesticides in them will go into the groundwater sources, into the rivers and the lake. Meanwhile, the consumptive water is penetrating that soil, affecting the health of that soil. So making it extremely difficult to grow anything else on that land or switch to organic production. The same recess I was resource I was talking about before, there was a woman from Texas, organic cotton, who had made that switch. She said it took such a long time because the use of these pesticides is essentially ecological narcotics. Because the more that you use, the more that you need it. Because obviously Bayer wants to make more money. Or Monsanto, or insert big corporation here. Um, and she she kind of pointed out how this is kind of what happens when you're treating the land like an intensified factory. It doesn't sound the most sustainable thing. But Charlie Rhodes from the Institute of Water, who who we're going to talk to later, she she did point out that cotton is repairable and it is long, long lasting, a lot longer lasting than synthetic fibres. So the point isn't to just go and bin all the cotton things that you've got in your wardrobe right now, if these facts are just really shocking. But just think, twice before you buy something new or when you do see if you can buy like organic or sustainable cotton i think a lot of uh, retailers on our high streets you know i was just in london yesterday and there's a lot of advertising now and we we could talk about whether some of it is greenwashing or whether we think it's 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 really true you know a, a lot of retailers are advertising how sustainable their brands are not only from an employee welfare perspective in, in the supply chain but also for for environmental reasons and i think um the kind of the cotton in industry has is people are people are understanding more about it but maybe they also need to think more about about the impacts on water resources because of the cotton they're buying i would love to do a really in-depth investigative study about whether this is greenwashing or not because like how transparent can these supply chains be the the moment you subcontract and then the subcontractor subcontracts like it, you just go deep and you you lose it but this is what we talk about in the economic segment down the line, like whether this this system is even possible. But let's move on to jeans, because they're really interesting too. There's a thought that because everyone wears jeans, everyone has jeans, we're all kind of contributing to this industrial water use and pollution every time we buy a new pair of jeans. I didn't know this. China produces a third of the world's jeans. And in China, currently, there is little to no water recycling process. So the water that is used in the production. So the cottons come into the factory. Great. Thanks. Cheers. The water that's actually used in producing the jeans, a lot of the time, it doesn't get recycled, cleaned and used back in the system. Levi 501s, for example, take 920 gallons of water to produce, which is the same as running a hose for 106 minutes. Nearly two hours. There's another thing as well that, um, and something I just had never thought about, distressed denim, you know, the rips and the cuts and the little, you know, the little like grazes that they have. Cool stuff, Um, yeah. There's there's only a few ways to do this. Um, I, I don't know how I, I didn't even think about how they were. I just like, oh, I guess that's just how they are and it's all done with a machine. But you can either do it chemically with sprays and burning it 
So you have to get dressed up in a in a thing, put a mask on and spray spray this shit out with every single pair of jeans. Or a lot of the times they hand wear them. So you've got some dude in a factory with a piece of sandpaper, literally sanding jeans by hand for 12 hours a day. I just had never thought about it before. Apparently denim, these chemicals that are used in the denim process to create these effects, they need 90% humidity in the environment to preserve the chemicals during production. So again, you've got some people in a factory in 90% humidity for 12 hours a day, maybe more. I can't even, I can't even, it's just mind boggling. I can't even think about it too much. Did you know that? No, I had no idea about, about how denim, where denim came from. Yeah, it's just adding to the problem, isn't it? This isn't all doom and gloom episode, guys. We are going to get to some solutions and, and how things can look for the very near future, if not now. So the last material I want to come on to is leather. Going back to the water footprint, uh, a fully grown beef cow Beef leather, cow leather, yeah, um, weighing 250 kilograms will produce six kilograms of leather. So the water, water footprint of this one cow is, is 17,000 litres per kilo. Again, obviously, there's great variations for the water footprint of leather, depending on where the cows come from and the production system in which the animal is raised. Leather is produced in places called tanneries. And for the majority um, of these factories, they are located along rivers because of the vast amounts of water needed. And then subsequently as well, the people who work at these factories live near rivers and water sources as well. Have you ever seen inside a tannery factory, Ed? I've never seen inside a tannery factory. No, no neither had I until about three or four weeks ago when I was doing research for this episode. We are going to focus mostly on the tannery factories in India, Bangladesh uh, and Indonesia. If this process isn't able to be fully mechanised, listeners, check out the link we've included in the show notes. There's a great photo essay that The Guardian have done following the tannery process of a factory in Bangladesh. So we are taking the dead animals, we are skinning the dead animals, we're treating the skin, washing the skin, drying the skin, dyeing the skin, and then shaping the skin, which all need vast amounts of water and chemicals. This chemically water is discharged with little to no regulation and definitely no treatment into the any you know insert nearby water source here for example it's estimated that 50 million liters of untreated effluent is put into the ganges river in india every day that includes untreated sewage as well so i guess we've got kind of two stances on why fast fashion is bad you know we talked about pesticides earlier and how they can you know, add to nasty effluent that, that goes into the water course, which is, you know, bad for you know trying to then treat it to make it fit for human consumption. And we're talking about the same thing here with leather and the chemicals um, in, involved in that process, which pollutes uh, river sources and water sources in, in other countries. And then we've got the same argument that we talked about in our food episode, uh, where we talked about how much water it actually takes to grow certain crops and certain foods and, and cotton being a real sort of big consumer of, of water in that sense. I have some examples for you. There's kind of three rivers we can focus on and this kind of shows you the, the evidence of this process in real life and the damage that it can do. So we've got the Ganges River in India, the Buraganga River in Dhaka in Bangladesh and the Sitaran River in Jakarta. On the Ganges River, you have um, a Lalabad conference, confluence, sorry, which is of three rivers. They have this massive festival there 
the Kumbla Mela festival. But the government literally has to order the tanneries upstream to shut down for a month so that the river can be, can be a little bit cleaner for people bathing in, bathing in the holy waters of this confluence. In Dhaka, you've got this place called the Azari Bag Tanneries, which is a, a, you know, a massive district for tanneries. People there are wearing no PPE, no washing stations, barefoot, no gloves while they're doing these processes, living around the river as well, reporting things such as like sensory depletion, respiratory issues and stomach ulcers. And then on the Sutaran River in Jakarta in Indonesia, they've got these systems of anonymous pipeworks that factories hide, they build and hide them to just start discharge the, the untreated effluent into the rivers. To give you an idea of the chemicals that we're talking about in the tannery process, we've got uh, coronium, which causes skin rashes, stomach ulcers, jaundice and cancer, brominated flame retardants, which interfere with your hormones, azo dyes, which is a known carcinogenic, organotin compounds, which affect the immune system, plethonated chemicals, which is used to make things water resistant, stick proof and stain proof that can affect your liver and chlorobenzenes and chlorinated solvents, which can mess with your nervous system. And then the, the heavy metals of cadmium, lead and mercury, which is also known carcinogenic. And people are just interacting with these chemicals every day in yes. very precarious context. And, and no, but no one, you know, over the age of, let's say, 50 working there because you just can't anymore. I just I, I really get frustrated with things like this because I feel like there's this prevailing opinion that environmental degradation, and human degradation is seen as kind of acceptable collateral damage to development and like industrialization in other countries. Because like I said before, there's a lack of there's lack of policy, lack of environmental legislation. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I guess if you look back at the Industrial Revolution in in um, in the UK, for example, that people were working in horrible conditions with pollution, you know, kind of air pollution happen, being rife, inhaling horrible, uh, you know, toxic fumes, um, and maybe maybe there's something comparable going on uh, at the moment here. But yeah, I guess we need to develop ways to still uh, to make these processes sustainable and and reduce the impact they're having on both people and and the environment. And we need you know governments and you know, countries to work together, companies to put pressure on from their end. Um, and we need, we need some regulation in place, I think. But the you can't force a country that produces these clothes to bring in environmental policy or regulation. It would it would literally have to benefit them, benefit their in order for them to do that. There's a lack of intentions, not a lack of money. I don't. There's clearly not a lack of money. Uh, we've already talked about how how much money fashion makes every year but it's just nothing's nothing's being done about it and i don't think it will i think someone's always going to pay the price it's where does that cost go i guess does it go to the to the, does the company take the hit does the consumer take the hit or does does the country potentially take a hit in, in risking losing their income as you say you know they're not going to want to risk that um the company is not going to want to give up their margins unless they're forced to so it, do we just pay more for for things to be sustainable I think we probably should do. My my takeaway from this is buy less and then when you do need to, buy well because you will have made that saving from not buying as much anyway. Look for 
the sustainable materials. Look for the new materials that are coming out. Me and Charlotte um, have a great conversation about the new innovative materials that are coming out later in the episode. So we're starting to see that there's a force working in the background here and pushing the abuse and mistreatment of water and humans and keeping the cycle going. Dipping our toes and connecting the dots into the economics of all of this adds another side. So step in our water consumer for the episode, Ravi Shatani. Um, so I'm here with my friend Ravi to get a take on the economics behind all of this fast fashion and natural resource use that we're talking about on today's episode. So Ravi is one of my newest friends in Granada. Um, Ravi, tell our listeners what your occupation was in a past life. I am a retired investment banker. Um, <laughs> And it was a Morgan Stanley for a couple of years uh, in the wealth management slash institutional consulting area. And then after that, I did corporate finance. So a lot of fun stuff, essentially. Um, Ravi's really good at pulling apart kind of like the smaller details of projects and topics. That's why I've got him on. But what I'm more interested in firstly is, are you into fashion? Uh, not so much, to be honest with you. I uh, I dress like a twelve-year-old boy. Is what my <laughs> girlfriend likes to say. But yes or no. What was the um, What was the last thing you bought? That's uh, of meaningful value. I would say when I was at Morgan Stanley, I'd probably purchased some Forzieri stuff to impress some the people. Some Forzieri. Yeah, Italian brand. Um, <laughs> right. Extremely expensive. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, um, what's your favorite item of clothing that you own? Uh, board shorts. Board shorts. I go to Latin America a lot, and it involves a lot of uh, beaches and diving and surfing. So I, I uh, usually wear board shorts often. Um. So we've been talking a lot about. Well, what I'm interested in mostly is how the fashion industry, the fashion, the garment industry, the apparel industry, has been able to get to this scale and cause this much damage to the environment. What's your take on it? What are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I am not an expert, obviously, in, mm-hmm. in the fashion industry or the apparel industry, but I have, uh, I have the understanding that uh, the amount of water that's needed to uh, create some of this clothing, the amount of coloring, and the amount of clothes people use or families are using every day, even in, in less economically developed countries, is excessive. We're throwing away clothes every two to three months, and, and that is uh, essentially feeding and, and, and busting the fashion industry, which it seems like it's become huge over the past 10 years. But why, I mean, so I was chatting to you the other day that natural resources that are used in the fashion industry have their limits. You can't just keep pushing them and pushing them and pushing them. But they're being used in a system, this economic system that seemingly doesn't have any limits. So, so why are we doing that? It's because it makes money. And that's the reality of it, right? I mean, you've got, uh, I, I believe a, a lot of the fashion companies, if I'm not mistaken, for instance, Gap and, and, um, and other, like Puma or Adidas, they're all really part, uh, they may be part of the same sort of conglomerate, right? 
Um, even uh, Mancio from Spain, who owns Zara, he, he, he's one of the, the entre entrepreneurs that started this sort of fast fashion where he, quote-unquote, made it affordable to throw clothes away every three to four months because he saw a higher margin uh, rather than saying, oh, buy this good quality product once every two years, he understood the fact that if people were buying clothes more often, his gross margin would go up and so forth. But is that, was that a response to people? Do you think it was a response to people wanting this kind of fashion? Or do you think the fashion industry made, like, has made people think this way and buy this way and consume this 100%, way? A hundred percent. I think, I think we have made, uh, with different sort of mediums, right? Social media being one of them, and we have made people think that they need to have a different style every spring, every winter. Obviously, for winter, you would need something heavier, especially if you're in, in the northern countries. But the reality is that we have created sort of this need, among, especially among uh, the younger people, mm. and through social media, where where we're sponsoring artists or or rappers or. Uh, athletes mm -hmm. to essentially change their Nike shoes every three months because a new one came out and it's quote-unquote lighter when, yeah. or it makes a difference to wear the new cleats because even my brother who played semi-professionally had to change his soccer shoes, cleats or football shoes, whatever you want to call it, every three or four months, not because of wear and tear, but because a new one that was lighter came out and there was this perception that he needed a lighter cleat to be faster on the field, but it was all a marketing scheme or not a scheme, but a marketing strategy if you were to say. Tell me um, the fact about Crocs you were telling me the other day as well. Yeah, so they, they built a, a bad business model because they made a product that was, in essence, indestructible. So, How dare they? So what, yeah, so what is happening now, right? Before the Crocs were used for essentially restaurant workers, right? Because they were slip-proof uh, or they were just for comfort. Um, they were good, solid, a one-time purchase, unfashionable. But now you see artists like Bad Bunny wearing Crocs, uh, and they're different colors, and now Crocs have become sort of this item of fashion. And and they realized that they've created a product that was indestructible. So after that one sale, they're not realizing more sales. And they, in essence, needed to create more sales. So they made the product less quality, different colors, and they invested in fashion, which made it fast fashion. And now you see people wearing pink Crocs, but then a new version of, I don't know, I'm not making this up, you know, Crocs Supreme could come right. out and those collaborations and just to continue sort of that thirst of the social media purchase. So then it's, um, it's kind of just a, a self-destructive circle, really, because they build this stuff in obsolescence because they want money, but then we're buying it anyway. So it's like there's no, there's no, nothing really to stop that from happening. I personally don't see it. I, I, I mean, if you it's, if it's such a big industry, you've got to think what are the repercussions of stopping that, right? I mean, let's say a pension fund of Morgan Stanley invests in Gap, which I, I can't remember the conglomerate, but it's a, it owns a few brands, or even Zara, right? Like if they invest in that and then all of a sudden Zara's like, we're not doing fast fashion, Morgan Stanley's going to pull out because they know that that's the biggest revenue driver and all of a sudden you've got a bunch of retirees whose pension funds depends on fast fashion. So it's a really, it's a full, full, it's a full circle sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in right. essence. The story that's kind of flowing through all of these examples is so for example with jeans El Paso in Texas was a really big jean manufacturer until the water became a little bit more unreliable and the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement was signed in 1994. So this along with 
uh, similar free trade agreements were were held up as a step forward for globalization with all sides benefiting because uh, it's facilitating outsourcing to countries and giving people jobs and etc cetera, etc cetera. but this facilitation of outsourcing you're outsourcing your production to countries that don't have the same strict environmental laws or regulations or labor laws or labor regulations even and it also allows countries to export their vulnerabilities whether it's water sources or production or economic policies onto others and then in turn this is what my friend Ravi explained to me it brings down the price of production because the process is cheaper the overheads are cheaper the labor cost is cheaper the raw materials are cheaper but this is what I'm talking about. It's such a complex thing. Yeah, and maybe this is where we really need to, to move forward as a society and actually start recycling clothes. I mean, this is I think this is where the reduce, reuse, recycle thing comes comes in. Jeans are so sturdy, man. If you find a good pink, fitting pair of jeans, they'll see you through for years and years and years. consumers to one degree or another. Learning about these facts and realities maybe for the first time. The question here then is what can we do? Is it a case of reduce, reuse, recycle? And if we do buy, what are the best options? Let's speak to Charlotte Rhodes from Natural Resources Wales and water in fashion expert to get her advice. My advice really would be it depends what's accessible to you. So my motto in life and what I try and sort of push out through my blog and things is that it's great if you can make all these changes that um, I bang on about and other people bang on about. But if it's not financially sustainable for you individually, then it's not sustainable. But that said, there are um, certain sort of little tweaks that you can make to your own routines that will um, eventually kind of snowball and amount to bigger things so if you're someone that's um, super interested in fashion and you love shopping you know you go sort of every week or every month or whatever then the best thing that you can do is first of all take out everything that's currently in your wardrobe and work out what you actually wear that you currently own if you wear everything fine brilliant crack on but if not which most people don't most people only sort of wear things a handful of times or you know you'll find something in the back of the wardrobe and think oh I forgot that existed um and so shopping your own wardrobe is a brilliant place to start because quite often we have things that we don't wear so often um there's this thing called the 30 wears rule so as and when I do buy something new nowadays I tend to think right okay well am I going to wear it 30 times at the moment it's only 10 to 20 percent of clothes and charity shops tend to actually be bought and that was pre-covid so mm. it's probably even less now and so actually, you know, they need to be part of the solution because, like I say, we all donate to them, but we need to actually shop from them in order to stop those clothes going to waste. Because any any that they don't sell tend to sort of get sold onto rag markets and sometimes they get recycled. But um, sometimes they end up going, like I say, into markets back into the disadvantaged rural communities that they were made in. And that then ruins their own local um setups which are often more sustainable because like i say a lot a lot of sort of communities um hand make their clothes and they're all made in sort of you know a slow fashion kind of way if you um are a bit hesitant about charity shops in person for whatever reason i find them a little bit 
tricky at times because you do have to kind of comb through quite a lot you have um, to go then there are such, lots more... you have to go with such a strong head headspace and be like no I yeah. am I am not leaving until I find a good fitting pair of jeans and sometimes it can take like an hour going from like this yeah to this it's shop. hard and especially because I'm someone I only like I like to buy something specific I don't like to just go and be like oh we'll see what I find today which a lot of people who charity shop do I prefer to sort of have something particular in mind to be like right I'm searching for black jeans and if I don't find black jeans in this shop then I'll go to the next one and the next one and actually you know there's there's some merit in that because in theory um I need black jeans because they would go with other things in my wardrobe but at the same time it can make it a lot harder to charity shop shop um the next step then would be um there's a lot of online fashion sites now, uh, secondhand fashion sites such as Depop and Vinted. Um, eBay is really good for certain things as well. Things like um, e- uh, occasion dresses and sort of expensive coats and things like that. And on eBay as well, if you're looking for something in particular, this applies to obviously furniture as well as clothes. eBay is just great for all sorts. Um, but if you're looking for something in particular, you can set up search alerts, which is quite handy because there was a really specific coat that I wanted last year that was made by a sustainable brand, but I couldn't afford it brand new. Um, and by setting up that search alert, I managed to like nag it as soon as it came online, which was good. Like you said, you, you know, you can, if you want, go on a sort of a boycott and test yourself and say, actually, how long can I go without buying something brand new? And that doesn't include, you know, charity shops, Depop, etc. that we've just mentioned. So you can still buy things if that's what excites you. But just don't buy anything brand new for a while and but see what, how you get on. What about if you, the, 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 the thought that if you do need to buy something new, buy it well. Mm-hmm. So look at, yeah or like all things made from alternative fibers like bamboo or hemp or this exactly. tensile which is wood pulp um mm-hmm. it might so that is no go on yeah that that's getting a lot easier thankfully and and again like you say that's a whole other thing where you think right well I actually need something new like pants for example no one wants secondhand pants so where can you sustainably find secondhand underwear and stuff like that or even you know if if it's an occasion and you just want something that you know you're going to wear a bunch of times like men's fashion for example is you know we could go into a whole other sort of debate about this but men's fashion tends to be a bit more sustainable by default because they tend to wear their clothes longer and things like suits tend to last a lot longer than a lot of what our sort of standard gendered clothing might be but anyway stuff like that that you you know are happy to invest in brand new because you know you're going to use it loads um, then there's a couple of different ways to look for things. But as you mentioned, there's a lot of different materials now that are also um, helping along a bit. So things such as, like you said, Tencel is one that is creeping in a lot with, I noticed it in Tesco recently. So, you know, places that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find sustainable or more sustainable clothing by including that with the cotton it lessens the you know the the emphasis on the cotton production and therefore saves water because the production of tensile as itself as you mentioned is wood pulp so that uses less water naturally things like monocell as well as bamboo so i have quite a few different bits of bamboo clothing bamboo socks are great because they're really breathable and bamboo pants i have to say are the most comfortable pants i've ever had in my life so they're really really, um, really soft aren't they i have a, some yeah it's it's well. a really soft really like a touchy feely kind of material but it's lovely and i um you know, you can get it in all sorts nowadays. Um, I got some bamboo gym wear and I haven't taken them off. <laughs> like it was a bit of an investment, which, you know, goes back to the cost thing. But I um, have already worn them more times than 
probably any of my other gym wear just because they're so comfy. But this is the thing. People think it's an expensive outlay. But if you are reducing how mm. much you're buying in the first place, because you're not shopping every month when you get your paycheck or every week for these clothes that you exactly. wear, think about how much money you're not spending in, let's say, a six-month period. Mm. That would probably be more than, you know, the the bamboo gym wear is or the sustainable or the hemp shirt yeah. or organic cotton and what have you is mm-hmm. anyway. So this is why I think it's a trick. Because clothes are so cheap, so people think they have loads of money because they can buy loads. Mm-hmm. And, and and we're kind of we've been conditioned to think that if we're not buying stuff, it's it's like not it's you know, well, yeah, I need to show my worth, I need to show that I can buy stuff, so I'm going to buy stuff. But what what mm-hmm. I respect more is people that buy less and buy well. When it comes to water's use in fashion, there are so many elements to consider. It is true that there are many great examples of how to do things better, and they're included in the show notes, but these still remain on a small scale, often operating in what is seen as more developed countries. So for us, it boils down to one fundamental question. Can the fashion, textile and apparel industry exist sustainably when it comes to water? Okay, my final question is, do you think sustainable fashion can exist on a mass scale? So the scale that we have now with fast fashion and with unsustainable Mm -hmm. fashion, that exact same scale, but everything sustainable, everything conscious. I don't know is the honest answer. It's really hard. I think there there obviously is technology there to sort of reuse and recycle materials and make them into new clothes and that sort of thing. But the issue with a lot of, um, take recycled polyester, for example, that is in a lot of the sort of conscious collections of various high street brands, um, that, that has been downcycled. That hasn't been clothes and then recycled into more clothes. That has been downcycled from something else. So the, And the more often you do that, I mean, it varies, you know, whether it's cotton or polyester or whatever, it varies on the material. But the more often you recycle something, generally speaking, the weaker it gets, the weaker the fibres get. So there's still only a finite amount of times you can do that. And it obviously will then get to a certain point where you can't physically recycle it. So this is why things like cotton and hemp and natural um, materials are still preferable to sort of polyester and that sort of thing because once polyester gets to the end of its recyclable life then it's still going to be waste at some point it's still going to have to um, you know be incinerated or landfill or whatever whereas cotton and hemp and natural sort of fibers uh can be composted at the end of their life yeah okay they've gone through you know some nasty chemicals like we talked about earlier but um at the end of their use they can and will sort of uh, what's the word degrade to a certain degree which is why they're still preferable in the first place but with that um back to the sort of question i'm not 100 percent sure to be honest because i like i say i'm glad to see changes happening albeit small ones and many would sort of disagree with those in of themselves yeah it's a tricky one as I said earlier in order to make sustainability the norm you still need growth you you know we're not going to down overthrow capitalism in the next sort of five years or whatever so you in a 
yeah in a certain way you kind of have to um currently have to play to that tune in order to make it sort of more widely available which isn't necessarily right but that's just how it is so i think if that sort of thing continues to happen then perhaps it will become more normalized and more widely available but i don't know whether that will happen for fashion uh, the, my answer to this question is no i don't think sustainable fashion can exist on a mass scale i think mm -hmm. unfortunately fashion um is was operating in this capitalist kind of model that we've set up this globalized model that we now live in but the problem is is that it's working with natural resources that have limits so yeah it will continue to push and push i think until it just gets to a breaking point i don't think mm. it would take a, a massive critical mass of people to reduce reuse recycle whatever for there to be any significant change so it's just going to keep going and going until i don't know until what until i i assume either we figure out a more sustainable way of doing it or we run out of resources or the consequences are so high the stakes are so high that people will realize but i believe that it's too late because You've, I mean, just open up Instagram, right? Like every single post that you see has a tag to buy all, most of the time. Sunglasses, a watch, or a, a piece of clothing, shorts, even socks. I mean, um, yeah. It, so you're influencing the globalization and part of social media uh, that plays into this is the fact that now anyone in the world can look at some sort of fashion and say, I want this. And maybe they're not able to afford Gucci or, or Louis Vuitton, but they are forcing people to make the fake versions of it, the counterfeit right. versions, and that creates even more product that's out there, so. Um, enlightening, as always, Ravi. This is why yeah. we get on so well, because we both have like a semi-pessimistic view of the world, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but let's not, let's forget about that. Let's grab our ball shorts and go and hang tan at the beach. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> This may have been a hard episode to hear. It was for us too. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that as consumers, we're completely helpless. We can try to make a difference and we must. As the saying goes, this is the only planet we have. And as we say, there is no new water. So we must strive to protect both. Please look at the show notes for resources for how you can start to make a difference. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the first series. Tune in next time as we try our hardest to answer the seemingly simple question, what is water?